Welcome to Superhero Leadership, the podcast that explores outstanding leadership through the lens of some of the most successful superhero leaders in business, sports, politics, the military, and public service. This podcast is for anyone who aspires to great leadership. Our host, Peter Cuneo, has experienced superhero leadership throughout his life and career. From serving as a naval officer in the Vietnam War to being the CEO of Marvel Entertainment, Peter has completed seven business turnarounds in consumer products, media, and in entertainment, and served on the boards of many public and private enterprises, often as chairman. Drawing from his list of what he considers 32 essential qualities and characteristics for great leaders, Peter offers actionable takeaways you can implement into your own life and career today. Here's Peter to introduce his guest. It's always a pleasure to reminisce about my experience at Marvel Entertainment as CEO. And in my opinion, working with today's guest made me look very good. Without him, Marvel would not have had the level of success we achieved then. And his presence is still felt today at Marvel. Our guest was originally attracted to the comic book world by Spider-Man, who ignited his creativity. He became an award-winning illustrator. He created key characters for Valiant Comics. And in 1998, at Marvel, he launched his personal line of comics called Marvel Knights. I came to Marvel the following year in 1999, and in 2000, he was appointed editor-in-chief of our publishing business. His ultimate Marvel line introduced millions of new fans into the world of superheroes. Later, he was chief creative officer and executive vice president. My guest grew up in the borough of Queens here in New York City, just like Spider-Man, and actually, so did I. It is our great pleasure to have Joe Casada here with us today. Good morning, Joe. Morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very good. I had a really a nice time reminiscing about our time back at Marvel. We were there just as Marvel came out of bankruptcy. You were there the actually at West, the end of the Peter. bankruptcy. And one of the things that we always talk about when we look at leadership is number 10 on our list of 32 essentials. It says always hire world-class people. And I remember very distinctly that although I had no background in comic books or frankly motion pictures either, it was very clear to me very quickly that if we were going to be successful, the seed for all that success was going to be our publishing business. That's the fountain of creativity that we needed to really take off. But we had a problem, Joe, which you know very well, I'm going to ask you about this. During bankruptcy, and I often talk in my speeches about bankruptcy, and I call bankruptcy the equivalent of chemotherapy. You're no longer cancer-free when you get done, but you lost a lot of your hair. (laughs) And in this case, we lost a lot of our very good talent in the publishing business. And they left because they could, and they were good, and they could go elsewhere. But I also think they left some of them because they felt they were not appreciated, mistreated, if you will, during the bankruptcy as well. So you came in and your challenge was, how the heck do I get the talent back and some new talent as well, Yeah, given their negative feelings about the company? Because mm-hmm. if you couldn't do that, in my opinion, we weren't going to go very far. And I remember thinking, I did talk to a few of them, but I really didn't have the background to say the right things to these people. 
And I was dependent on you and some of the other people that work for you to get that done. And you did a great job with it. But if you could talk a little bit about that challenge. I'm going to flash forward a little bit. I remember I was uh, sitting with Bob Iger at, at a Disney summit one day and talked about creativity. And you know, like the thing that a lot of companies don't realize, creative companies don't realize, and I wasn't referring to Disney per se, but that creativity is the invisible currency that fuels the engine, right? You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can see it, but you can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't smell it. But if it's the right kind of creativity, if strong creativity, that is the fuel, right? It all starts from there because from that creativity, Marvel fueled everything, right? Consumer products, the movies, the TV shows, the animation. But we were dead in the water. And the perspective I think I brought, Peter, there was nothing that I made up on my own. I always said that when I sat in the editor-in-chief's desk, Stan Lee and our predecessors had left a map, a metaphorical map and instructions. This is what makes Marvel work. But over the years, Marvel had through all the different ownerships, and it was the speculator boom and all that sort of stuff. They forgot the key components, which was creatives and creativity and telling great stories, right? We became the Franklin Mint. We stopped telling stories. And consequently, the comic industry was suffering tremendously during the bankruptcy because there was that saying, when I got into the industry, I always heard, as goes Marvel, so goes the industry because we had the best characters, the top. And this is no slight to DC. We were just the market leaders at that time. So my challenge was you had creatives that have left the industry because they didn't see it as a viable way of making a living anymore. When the crash happened, me and my creative partner, Jimmy Palmiotti, we were sitting there going, okay, when is rock bottom? And we would never, <laughs> it kept getting worse and worse. And we weren't at Marvel at the time. And we were looking at our options saying, this is all we need to know how to do, right? We, it's like, what am I equipped to be? A mall cop, maybe when it's all said and done. But working on both sides of the table right now, I also knew that one of the reasons that Marvel had lost creatives was because of poor treatment. And also the thing that very few people talk about was internal freelance. That was killing us. You would have a top writer who would want to write a book for Marvel, but that book was taken. And who was it taken by? It was being written by an editor or an assistant editor who most times was not really equipped to write that book. And this was a, a cultural thing at Marvel. So we had to stop the internal freelance. And then I had to go out there creator to creator because there is a language. There's a language that creators speak and it's unspoken. It's all subtext, but it's a trust. And I think I gained that trust over the years working as a creator, but also owning my own small company, which is the company that came in to do Marvel Nights for Marvel. We were a packager. I had a lot of friends and I just said, look, trust me, this is not the same Marvel, right? The Marvel that you're angry at, every single one of those people you're angry at is gone. They're not there anymore, right? The only people that are left are the good ones, the editors, who had your back but couldn't do much about it. And the one thing, this might sound weird, but the one thing I guaranteed creators was, look, this is a work for hire job. I don't own the characters. I don't own the company. Things happen in the creative world. Your books sell, your books don't sell, you're late, whatever may happen. But at some point, you may feel like the company is screwing you. And I may just be taking you off a book because your sales aren't good. I said, the one thing I promise you is if that moment comes, I'll be the one to tell you. And I'll be honest with you because Marvel also had a track record of just like, why was my book canceled? And suddenly you'd be shuffled off to some assistant editor who'd sit there and try to figure it out yeah. for you. Joe, you're really ringing a bell with me mm -hmm. with this issue about being honest with people. And actually, the second of our 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership reads, be human, 
be honest, tell people what you really think. You were trying to change the culture, yeah. I think, of the publishing business. I was trying to change the culture of all of Marvel. Another one of our, number 11 of our, our essentials, and I'll read that one to you, is creating a new culture, a leader's toughest job. The waltz or the tango, which style is appropriate? Mm -hmm. Was there a point, though, where maybe you landed one or two particularly well-known, regarded illustrators or writers that, oh, yeah. that started to help you attract, okay, they're here. Now you could talk to other yeah. people and say, look who came and we're different. Yeah, I mean, it started with Marvel Knights when we were able to bring Kevin Smith, the director, the acclaimed director of Clerks and Mallrats, to come and work for us. And Kevin, people just say, oh, great, so it's a Hollywood guy that came in. and did. No, it's more than that. I always say that Kevin was responsible for the turnaround of the entire industry. He will never take credit for it, but he was because what Kevin did was, this is a guy, it's one thing to go from comics and then suddenly you're working in movies, but Kevin is a guy who was in movies now came to work in comics, right? So you're going from the ocean to the pond. And that's a risk because if you fail in the pond, the ocean's going to laugh at you and it could hurt. But he rolled the dice. Not only was he incredibly successful as a comic writer, but he brought much needed attention to Marvel Knights and to Marvel which then, of course, helped me get the job as editor-in-chief, which was nothing ever on my bucket list when I was <laughs> growing up, right? Just, it seems like something somebody else gets to do. But there were people like that, like Kevin Smith. And I'll tell you a story. I don't know if you're aware of this one, Peter, but when Bill Jemis was our publisher at that time, and I'd gone to Bill, I said, look, there are two creators in particular who are legendary and who we really, and I say we, Marvel mm -hmm. past, right? Mm -hmm. That I would like to try to make amends with. What, what this would require is that they both had projects that they did with us many years ago, and they had rights issues with some of the characters that really should have reverted back to them, but they never did. And Marvel just said, screw you, right? Not realizing how important these creators were to us. One was a gentleman by the name of Alan Moore, one of the greatest writers in the history of comics. The other one was a gentleman by the name of Neil Gaiman, another one of the greatest hit writers in the, in the history of comics. I asked Bill, can we make these things right? I don't know if they'll ever work for us but I just want to make this right because also as a creator, I got to sleep at night. And Bill said, go for it. And we talked to legal and we worked it all out. So I flew to Northampton in the UK to meet with Alan Moore. And I told Alan, I said, look, I just want to make peace. It's not the same Marvel. This is not saying we will give you this if you work for us. We want to give you your rights back on this. If you ever decide to work for us, please give us a call. I'm here. I did the same thing with Neil. I visited him in upstate New York where he was living. And same deal. Gave him back. And, and I knew Neil personally. Alan and I had never met before. At the end of the day, flash forward years later, Alan never did any work for us, which is fine. But Neil did. And he did some work for us. And it was an incredibly mutually beneficial relationship. I mean, he made a significant amount of money. We made a significant amount. It just really worked out. Marvel got Neil Gaiman, which was considered impossible. But there were other creators that came in. We approached guys like Grant Morrison. And for those who aren't in the world of comics, these are all, we started with the writers. The writers were the most important thing to us. And I'm traditionally an artist who grew into a writer. But I knew that as a fan, I love the art, but really it was the stories that brought me back. It was the stories that would make me buy the next issue and the next issue. And if the art was beautiful, wow, double whammy, right? But we went after writers. Bill was behind me 100% on this. And we just said, we got to improve the writing. We got to improve. And then we also, I had a, in my back pocket from Marvel Knights, I had a few young writers that were coming up. And I'm like, these are going to be the big stars in the coming years. And one of them was Brian Michael Bendis, who became arguably the best-selling writer of that decade. 
And Mark Miller, who now had some, has a huge deal with Netflix and created his own universe and stuff and old dear friends of mine, but they really were just bubbling up. Joe, it's interesting to me because if you will, leading, mm-hmm. I don't like to use the word managing, leading any other human beings, particularly in your case, a band of highly creative people is an experience I've never actually had. You may recall that I really did not get involved in the creative side of no, the business very often. You and I might have talked about abandoning the comic book code, which we yes. did. <laughs> I think we talked once about killing off Captain America for two years or something. And I read the comics, but I read them after they were published sure. because I came to the company. I didn't know anything about the characters. And I want to share some thoughts to you about the characters. And I want to get your point of view, which will have much more in depth yeah. than mine. And why I thought that the Marvel characters were particularly excited. You still had to create great content from them. But my understanding is during the late 30s, the golden age of comic books, DC created most of the characters that Mm -hmm. we know today. One exception being Batman. But it was during the Depression and the characters were basically modeled on Greek and Roman gods. So they were omnipotent. Superman had actually, I think when Superman first came out in 39, there was no kryptonite. That had to come later because he was just, there was no tension at all. He couldn't really fly either. He jumped. Is that right? Yeah. Like I didn't even know that. But that was DC primarily during that age. And then fast forward to the silver age, if you will, of comic books, which 61 to 65, Stan Lee and an amazing group of talent, of editors especially, created just about all the major characters that we know today at Marvel. The core. Yeah, Yeah, the core. And what made them radically different from DC and was the brilliant stroke for Stan again and and his editors was they were all flawed. They weren't omnipotent. They weren't perfect. Mm -hmm. They all had flaws. And this allowed the readers, frankly, to identify with them And essentially, that created an emotional connection to the characters that you wouldn't get elsewhere. And I know that the emotional connections really shocked me, actually, when I came to the company. I was not expecting how emotional, how vibrant that connection with the comic book fans and Marvel was. I had no clue. But I think that's really the difference, the basis, if you will, for Marvel ultimate success. You still had to execute, of course, but the characters were so rich. And so approachable in a way. Every kid in high school thought they were one of the X-Men. Yeah. Because it's a time when you're going through, am I popular? Do people like me? Some people don't like me, but they're afraid of me because they don't know me. It's just like well, the so, X-Men. So, so, you know, I've thought about this a lot. And I agree with you. Yes, of course. It's the fact that they were human. They were flawed. But I think that also does a disservice because it oversimplifies it a little bit. So I would argue that what Stan... Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, all our predecessors. First of all, all of us at Marvel were, will be walking our creative trust fund babies, right? We're given this vault full of gold ingots and what are we going to do with it? But what they did was they created characters that were inherently more honest. And I don't say that in a derogatory way towards DC characters because DC characters were created at a time that, and their, their construct was perfect for the time, right? Batman came out at a time when urban crime was on a rise. And, but when you think about it, it's, we really think about it deeply. So Superman is baby Cal el who's jettisoned from the planet Krypton. 
and he crash lands on earth and he's adopted by the Kents. And in order to live amongst us, Superman is given the persona of Clark Kent. But when you read a Superman book, Superman is really the character. Kal-El is the character. Clark Kent, the human persona, is a mask. It's a mask he puts on in order to facilitate Superman. Bruce Wayne, young Bruce Wayne, walks out of a movie theater. His parents are killed in front of him. From that day on, theoretically, Bruce Wayne ceases to exist and Batman emerges, right? And he trains himself to become this vigilante. But Batman is the real character. Bruce Wayne is the mask he wears to facilitate Batman. What Stan and company did was they reversed the paradigm. Peter Parker is the character. He's the human is the character. And when he puts on a mask, he becomes somebody different, right? Peter Parker's a shy, nerdy kind of kid. When he puts on the mask, he's funny, he's quippy, he's like a whole different person. And that, it to me, is instantly more relatable because we all wear masks during the course of the day. When I'm at home, when I was working at Marvel and I'm home and I'm kissing my daughter goodbye, she's going to school and I'm going to work, I got my daddy mask on. Then I got to come to work, I got to put on my work mask, right? We all wear masks during the course of the day. And that's why I think these characters in the Marvel sense are so much more relatable. And over the years, I think DC has tried to reverse the paradigm, but it's baked into the DNA. And Superman is, he's essentially, he's the high school quarterback, really. But he, he puts on the glasses to make himself more relatable. And again, some people prefer that paradigm, but to me, I always preferred the more honest version. Peter Parker is just every one of us. And the Spider-Man mask, I don't think they knew when they were doing it, but that Spider-Man mask, because it covers his entire face, he could be anyone underneath that mask. But that's the beauty of what Stan did. Stan just said, I want to make them normal people. I don't want to make them matinee idols. And then he added the faults. He added the idea that these characters had real lives and real trouble. And just because they put on a suit of armor or a costume or whatever, didn't make those problems go away. Today, we take that for granted. But putting that in historical perspective, his publisher slash uncle thought he was nuts to yep. do this yep. and thought it was doomed for failure. And then when the Fantastic mm -hmm. Four came out and it was a huge hit, he said, do more of that. because <laughs> that's Joe, let's talk about Spider-Man because yeah. I know that uh, Spider-Man, in a sense, got you into the comic book business. Mm -hmm. 1962, Amazing Fantasy, the August issue, yep. first appearance of Spider-Man, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, etc. Yep. 1963, Amazing Spider-Man number one. Spider-Man gets his first, mm -hmm. his own comic book yep. at that point. What was it, though, about Spider-Man? And we could talk a little bit about your growing up as well here in Queens. Sure. We often ask our, our guests to talk a little bit about what they remember has formed them as a leader when they were young, yeah. family life, whatever. What was it, looking back, that contributed in your upbringing to your skills today? My parents were from Cuba, but they came to the States long before the revolution. You know, they're immigrants, and I was their only child born here. But I had a knack for drawing, and my father could see it very clearly because he wanted to be an artist, but he never had the chance in Cuba. So all of my friends... All their parents are like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an accountant, be an engineer. Those are the things to be. They probably still have things to be. But my dad was like, be an artist. And he would buy me books on art. There was a guy on TV. I didn't realize at the time, I'm watching these in the early 70s, there was a guy on TV called John Nagy, who was, he was like the original Bob Ross. He was the first artist to ever draw on TV. One of the first people to actually ever be broadcast on TV. And I would watch these things. And my dad would pop me in front of him and then he would buy me the John Nagy art kit. So he was a constant influence. 
And then one day my dad saw, I don't know if it was on TV or if we read it in the paper, but some crazy guy named Stanley who was talking about a comic that he had written. And the reason Stan was in the news was because it was an issue of Spider-Man that dealt with the evils of drug abuse. And the comics code, the dreaded comics code, refused, historically, just to make it clear, the comics code was a good housekeeping seal of approval, right? Like it was safe for kids. The comics code refused to put their stamp on this book, which is just incredibly ironic. But Stan said, screw it. We're going to publish it anyway. We took a risk. And so it made the news. So my dad, thinking like any dad would in 1970, whatever it was, he said, thought to himself, what better way to teach my kid about the evils of drug abuse and a drug addiction than through a comic book? He loves art. Let me, so he shuffled me off to the comic book shop. We picked it up. My first comic was Spider-Man. And there I'm reading this story. And my dad was 100%. I never did drugs. I never got addicted to drugs. However, it started a whole other addiction, Peter that probably cost him a lot more money in the long run. <laughs> because every week now I'm like, dad, take me to the candy store, take me to the candy store. And I was just started becoming a, a fan of comics and I, and I read them for a while and then I dropped them around the age of 12. And then reading Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker lives in Forest Hills. I could get on my three speed from Jackson Heights and I could ride my bike to Forest Hills and see where, is he on Austin Street? Where is he? And there was always that fantasy. And there was always that fantasy. Every once in a while, my parents would take me into the city. I'd look up at the buildings and I would imagine like Thor flying past or Iron Man flying past and then Captain America and the Avengers and stuff. The other thing about the Marvel Universe that was different than everybody else was that it took place in the real world. DC had Metropolis, Gotham City, Star City, whatever those cities were. Marvel had New York. And I lived in New York. And there's the Empire State Building and there's the Brooklyn Bridge. So they use these landmarks. So it was grounded in reality with this wink of fantasy. And that was it. I was in. And reading those books, not only I knew I could draw, but now I realized, wow, you can like actually have these crazy ideas. like the ones I was having and put them on paper and you could make, these are stories. And it just excited and my imagination just started exploding. And, I, and Stan Lee, to me, was like the Wizard of Oz. He was this magical guy who was writing these soapboxes, and I was reading them, and he would tell me about the inner workings of the company and all these things. By the way, this goes back to when I became editor-in-chief. All I did was open the drawer, and all these things were there just to use. Now, it's funny you talk about Stan. I have a, a quick story to tell you about Stan. My first Comic-Con which is in San Diego. I think it was the only Comic-Con way back then. You went to Mecca the first yeah, time. <laughs> yes. But I was with Stan. Yeah. I had just negotiated a contract with Stan. It's the contract where he got to do these appearances yeah, in all yeah, the movies. Yeah. And so he took me around in Comic-Con and you go in the main hall there and it was shoulder to shoulder. Sure. And it was like Moses parting the waters as Stan mm -hmm. walked around. And I was Stan's wingman. I was yeah. with him. But I was the, obviously the wingman. I think I had two months on the job as CEO or something <laughs> like that. And we got to one point where Stan stopped to talk to somebody. And of course, the crowd gathered around. And there was a gentleman close to me. And then I heard him say to his son, I don't remember the son's name, but I'll say, John, that's Stan Lee. It was total awe. And his son said to him, Dad, who's that other guy? And he said, that guy? He's nobody. So you see, I got my comeuppance <laughs> right away in the first couple of months on the job. Yeah. I have the greatest memories, though, of Stan, I have to say. I mm -hmm. thought that he was a phenomenal human being. Yeah. 
just a wonderful person. And I was always sorry to see him go when he went. Yeah, that's life. The old saying, never meet your idols or your heroes. Stan is one of three of my heroes that I've met that lived up to what my imagination of what they would be like, right? They lived up to every bit of it. Stan was exactly the person I wanted him to be. And then to have him as a mentor, a friend. And again, as thinking back on eight-year-old me reading those soapboxes, I'm like, wow, <laughs> how did we get mm-hmm. here? You mind if I tell you a little Stan story? Go so, right ahead. Because we're talking about Marvel characters here, right? When I started Marvel Nights with my creative partner, Jimmy, I cold called Stan. We didn't know each other, right? Because I was really nervous. I'd never edited a book. I edited my own books, but not for Marvel. And I had these characters and I had a moment, just like my Gethsemane moment. I'm this, you know, <laughs> all this self-doubt, right? And so I just like, God. So I called him God. I called him Stan. I introduced myself and I said, Stan, would you, if I sent you the four outlines for the four books that we're doing, would you give them a read and give me some notes? Let me know what you think. He said, sure, Joey, send them over. So I, I send over the outlines and he gets back to me the next day and he's giving me these great notes. And I'm like, oh God, this is great. This is great. This is great. And before we get off the phone, facetiously, Peter, I just ask him, like, Stan, what's the formula to making a great Marvel character? And he goes, I'm going to tell you, Joey, right? And literally, I pull the phone away from my ear and I look at it and I mouth to myself, he's got a effing formula, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I put the phone back and he's, let me tell you, Joey. I'll, I'll spare you my Stanley impersonation. It's not bad, but I'll, I'll spare it. To you. He's like, here's how you create the perfect Marvel character. Imagine Spider-Man on the precipice of a building and he's looking out at the concrete canyon that is New York. And he's in that glorious red and blue suit and he puts his arm out and he whips a ribbon of web across to the building five blocks away. And then he jumps off that building and swings into the night. It's a pretty good scene, right, Joey? I'm like, that's a great scene. He's like, no, it's not. I'm like, oh. (laughs) He's like, no, (laughs) tell me first, who's inside that suit? What's his name? What are his beliefs? Who does he love? Who loves him? What are his desires? What are his failings? What are his troubles, tribulations? Tell me all that stuff. And in this way, when he jumps off that precipice, our hearts clutch because we're inside that suit with him. If not, it's just a red and blue suit. That was it. I'd seen the Matrix and I realized that every great Spider-Man story is just a great Peter Parker story we call it Spider-Man because it sells better. Every great Iron Man story is really a Tony Stark story. Mm -hmm. That's the Marvel formula. And when we deviate from that, if you ever look at times where Marvel's not doing well and stories are not doing well, it's because we deviate from that. Whether it's in a movie, animation, comics, whatever it may be, deviate from that formula and it's just not going to work. It's not Marvel. It's not the DNA. Yeah. I think the key that we had for Marvel, and particularly if we want to talk a little bit about the early films that we made, is we had a simple formula, which was action scene to start, modest action scene in the middle, and big finish action scene. But every other minute of that film was character development. And character development is just what you're talking about. You're learning about the characters. You're learning who they are, what they are, what their values are, how they behave. And that's what's, what makes the emotional connection to You're finding that thing right. in that character that is common to the reader and the viewer, right? If we don't find the commonality, then we just reject it. And it's even the villains. If you could find a moment of commonality with villain, even though you might not agree with them, that's gold. Then you've got a great villain. I think, unfortunately, that today, a lot of the films have become mostly bang them up, shoot them up, 
there's very little character development in the films now. And I think that that makes it harder for, I think, fans to get into them. Yeah, I don't, I try not, because I've been in that world, right, for a long time, the film and TV world, I know the struggles of making a lot of those shows. So mm -hmm. I try not to be a Monday morning quarterback on that stuff because I, I know that there's a lot of work that goes into it. But and to be honest, I haven't seen the latest stuff. But I know that when we're firing on all cylinders, like I always go back, to me, my favorite of Marvel movies is still Captain America, the first Captain America. Because the challenge of that movie, because especially these days in these very highly political this highly political climate, which is to create a character that wears the American flag and yet make him palatable to audiences everywhere across the world it was an amazing challenge. And to get into the heart of Steve Rogers is just, it's not an easy character. And they pulled that off in spades. And, I, and to me, that's truly a real Marvel movie that I don't think anyone could accomplish. Or I don't think there's another character out there like Captain America, right? Because he's rife. That's stupid potential, but also hazard, right? If you just misstep in one direction or the other, you're suddenly your house is on fire, right? But that to me is the formula when we do it right. So, but again, I just go back to the history of Marvel. When you look at times when Marvel was really successful, it's when we were hitting on all cylinders with that formula. It, it's like anything. If, you, if, if people feel like there's something about that character that I can relate to, then you have a successful story. There is a form of leadership called thought leadership. You may not have a big organization reporting to you or what have you, but you can sway people. You yeah. can lead them because my definition of leadership is simply organizing and motivating people to follow you in a productive path. It's, it's really that simple. Yeah. And you can do that in a number of ways. Yeah. I see it as leadership by example. And I played a lot of sports, right? So I use sports metaphors here, but I'll use a Marvel metaphor, a Marvel story. We were at, I want to say it was New York Comic Con, and we had the, we were having a huge Daredevil panel, right, for the Daredevil Netflix show. And Charlie Cox, a magnificent actor, true professional, was the number one on the show. He's Matt Murdock and he's Daredevil. And we're all lining up to go on stage to call our names. And Charlie, again, it just, this is a guy never flubbed a line, never blew a mark. Charlie is just an amazing performer and pro. And so I'm online. Charlie, of course, is at the top of the head of the line. And behind me is one of our actors. And I could hear him coughing and wheezing. And he's having a hard time. I'm like, and I turn back and I'm like, dude, are you okay? He's really sick. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And he points to Charlie and he says, I'm here because he's here. And if he's here, I got to be here. And that's what it means to be a number one on a show. I equate that to being the captain of a team, right? If the captain of the team is late at night, not getting park in time, whatever it may be, it gives the rest of the team an excuse to do the same. But if the captain leads by example and shows this is how you do it, there is no excuse for anyone not to do it. And they could fall off the rails and hey, if the big guy's willing to do it, you got to be able to do it too. So I think without words, to me, that's almost the best kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. Just show, don't do. Here's a question for Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider-Sense warns you of impending danger, making you proactive rather than reactive. How do you think this proactive mindset can serve as a lesson for leaders in various fields? I think it's a matter of getting ahead of the problem. Spider-Sense is a bit of a, psychic sense, but it's not really because it's not like he can foretell the future. He just can sense that there's an anvil coming. 
<laughs> and in business, towards your head. Yep. And in business, you have a choice. It's just there are no weeds in my garden when your garden is being overrun by weeds, and that's just a bit of ego getting in the way, right? It's, and but I think in the case of Peter, you step to the right, you step to the left, and I think you have to be nimble in the world. And, and so it was something that he inherited with the spider bite, along with a little bit of extra strength and sticking to walls, which is always cool. But I, I think it's just seeing what's up ahead. Is there a freight train coming? And okay, maybe the freight train, you can't stop it, but you could probably strategically figure out a way to make it a glancing blow. Well, he was always reacting to something right in front of him rather than anticipating very much. But a form of leadership is certainly anticipating. And I did this at Marvel. You may not remember this, but I would always say that, please bring me your problems. Don't hide them. Mm -hmm. What I can't sleep at night about is the problems I don't know about. Yep. Okay. So we always try to look ahead and see what might get in the way of our plans. Yep. And after a while, I think an organization, when they see that you really mean what you're saying and mm-hmm. you act that way, that it becomes part of the culture. It does. And I think, but the trick here, I think, is letting people know that you mean that, right? It's just if I go to the boss with my problems, I'm going to get fired. They have to understand that. They have to feel secure in the fact that you're willing that you want this information, right? That you need it for the healthy organization, for everybody's job, and that it's okay. Give me the bad news. I want to know it now before it's too late. I remember Ike Perlmutter once, like I was new to the world of business, right? I was a creative guy. And he explained to me how, yes, there was an org chart that is vertical, but we are all horizontal, right? It's like, we all have to talk to each other. We're all equal on that level in terms of what we're invested in and doing. And he explained it to me during some very harsh circumstances, but it was a great lesson that it took with me. But the key is that letting people know that they can do that because so much of business, a lot, there's a lot of fear in there. And loss. Of course. I think the only way it really happens is you'll find somebody who will take a chance. And when the word gets around that we're not a jerk about it, mm-hmm. that you were not unhappy, if anything, you were happy that they came to you to ask for help. Another one of our essentials I think is important is number eight. And it reads as follows. Never think I've seen it before. This is a major cause of leadership failure. Accept that you will have holes in your expertise. Get help to Mm -hmm. fill them. And that hole can be in solving a problem, not just your expertise. When I went to Marvel, as I mentioned before, I had no experience in comic books or in motion pictures. It was very clear to me that it would be tremendously arrogant of me to suddenly be giving notes on comic books and on motion pictures. I, as I said, I read the comic books after they came out. I did read scripts. I never made a single note. I'll take credit for staying out of the way mm-hmm. of the creatives in Marvel. I had the faith here that we had good people, certainly starting with yourself, but that were engaged in all the things and knew what they were doing. And for me to suddenly parachute in from 40,000 feet, telling people to change scripts and do this, it's absurd. And so I think that was one of the reasons though, we didn't have a lot of suits like me who they were going to tell the creatives Mm -hmm. what was best. Part of the strength of think of any management team is knowing your strengths. It's I would no sooner Peter go up to you to tell you how to run the business part of it, because it's not what I know. I've been fortunate enough to, you guys don't know it, but we've had some of the finest business people in the world working at Marvel that have come in and out. And I've been secretly mentoring, been mentored by you guys in so many ways because 
I walked out with a head full of knowledge, much more business savvy than when I walked in. And it's still not at your level. I also don't inspire to at your level, right? You do what you do, I do what I do. And I think, again, I know it's one of your tenets there, which is, you know what? Hire the best people. Hire people that are better than you, smarter than you. I hired people that were infinitely much more talented than me and get out of the way. Just get out of the way and let them do their thing. But the thing on the business side, what is very important when handling creative, which is what you guys did is, we need guardrails. Because if as a creative, I'll say this and maybe creatives will look at me and go, ah, but it's the truth. And I've talked to a lot of creative people who moved into a management role, who own their own companies, et cetera. If you give us everything we ask for, we'll burn the house down and we'll burn ourselves down with it. Because the guardrails, first of all, there's budgetary guardrails, right? It's, hey, we need X amount of dollars to accomplish this effect or this idea. No, okay. How much can we have? You can only have this much. Damn, it's not enough. All right, fine. And we go back and we start thinking and we come up with creative ways to work within those parameters. And I would say that nine times out of 10, the idea that comes out of that is even better than the original one, right? Because you got to think harder. It forces you to think harder as opposed to just being, again, nothing wrong with thinking wildly, but then you got to bring it back down to earth. And that's where... Again, I think on the business side, the smart businessmen and women will say, okay, look, these are your parameters and or tell me why you need this and understand, okay, what's really rational here and what can we afford? Because you're thinking ahead. As creatives, we're just thinking about the here and now, this story in front of us. We're not thinking about how does that investment in this story affect the next we want to tell. And that's that whole thing about the right combinations. And it just seemed like at Marvel at that time, it was the Wild West. We were throwing stuff up against the wall to see what would work. But it, it was all sort of maintained within a business plan, right? We could only go so far. And that just allowed us to go actually a little bit further because we were like, okay, how do we dance around the guardrail? <laughs> Not upset the apple cart. Well, Joe, thank you so much for thank coming you, by. It's great you're... fun. I want to plug one thing, if I could. I started a, a newsletter on Substack because I missed the days of talking to fans when I was editor-in-chief at Marvel. When I became chief creative officer, it became a little more difficult to talk because I was working on super secret projects. There's nothing to really tease. So I started a Substack, and it's called Joe Quesada's Drawing the Line Somewhere. So if you go to Substack, just subscribe. Mm-hmm. It's free. I don't charge for any of it. It's just me telling stories like these about Marvel, about my time, my family and stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in those kind of, then mm-hmm. come on board. It's uh, we get a real loyal consistent readership. And I'll get a lot of stuff coming up in the future that will probably start getting announced in January that if you're subscribed, you'll get to hear all the news first. But also it'll be a lot of inside Marvel stories too and inside stories about my new venture. Great. Joe, thanks for coming. Thanks, Peter. It's great. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Take care. Joe's a great guy and incredibly creative. Here are a few things I hope you took away from our conversation. The first one refers to our essential number 10. Always hire world-class people, never settle. Hiring world-class talent and creating a new culture are crucial in revitalizing your business. It was key to Marvel's success in film and comic books. Second essential that I think we talked about was number six. Don't be imperious or self-important. Be accessible. Marvel characters, like Spider-Man, resonated with audiences because they were flawed and relatable. As a leader, you need to be relatable in your teams. Another topic that we discussed is covered by Essential number 24. Welcome problems, worry about 
what you don't know. Thought leadership involves anticipating problems and being proactive in finding solutions. Another one of our essentials that we talked about was actually number two. Be human. Be honest. Tell people what you really think. Admit your mistakes. You know, being honest with employees and creating a safe space for them to share their problems is essential for effective leadership. Usually at this point, we take a question from one of you about a current challenge in your business. But in this episode, I'm having the great pleasure of inviting, via Zoom, a former colleague to discuss a business concern we had when we worked together at Marvel Entertainment. That concern was always about branding and reputation management. Please meet Russ Brown, currently the president of consumer products at Valiant Entertainment. Thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Russ and I first met in 1999 when I became the CEO of Marvel and Russ was running our licensing business. And I think you'll hear a lot from Russ about those days and how concerned we were about our brands, our superheroes were our brands, and our reputation. I remember very well that when I came to Marvel, I really had no background in licensing at all. I didn't have a background in motion pictures or comic books either. And so I had to learn from a lot of great people. And Russ was nice enough to put up with me for a while. I got the idea of what was important in licensing. And Russ, you might remember that I always liked this wagon wheel concept where the IP of Marvel was the hub, how we monetize the IP were the spokes, and the rim was a synergy between them. And when I came, we really only had two spokes. We had the comic book publishing business, and we had some licensing. But licensing was going to get much bigger in the future because of our success in motion pictures. Is that how you remember it? That is how I remember it. But a key component to reputation was that of the characters that we actually owned and controlled. A big part of that, 50-year reputation in the business, Spider-Man in animation, to own Fantastic Four episodes and Fox Kids and all of that. And we added another really important spoke, and that's the reputation of the people that we hired to build out the team. And I live that motto to this day. Yeah, I don't pretend that it's all me. It's the IP that helps to drive the business, but it is the people behind it who are putting their reputations on the line for the IP. You know, a lot of deals got done on the strength of our reputations and those are the people that work with us in that, who are you going to bet on? And I could say that's absolutely true at Valiant today, which is another former bankrupt entertainment company, comic book based. And I don't ever pretend that it's me getting these deals done solo or with the team I have today, but the characters carry the, the heavy weight and people look at me saying, well, if Russ is still at Valiant, then that's something I want to take a chance on. And many of those were people that, that had great success with us at Marvel. It's an interesting business in that, yeah, it's licensing and it's about minimum guarantees and advances and royalty rates and all that that goes along with it. But the reality is we only really all make money when we're successful at retail. The thing that really bonded a lot of the executives together was the idea that we were not going to compete in the industry the way other companies did. 
We were going to change the rules of the game. We were telling people we would behave differently. And one of the things I remember the most is the first hint to the naysayers, and there were many. We were a public company. Many of the analysts covering the company did not believe we could make it, particularly by doing things differently. I remember very well, and you will remember in 2000, X-Men 1 was the first film we did. And it was a huge hit. And that was the beginning of the change for me, at least, where the naysayers were starting to see, wow, Marvel's doing it differently and they're delivering. And you had the challenge of getting licensees, attracting them to the X-Men and actually taking a financial risk on their part where they would get the rights to uh, certain product categories. It was a big risk for them too. The next year we had Spider-Man 1, which exploded in terms of licensing. So what was it like for you to go to, let's say, a toy company and say, pay me some money up front, have some faith, and just trust me and trust the company? What was that like for us? A big part of the success was the fact that this was not a brand new IP. Again, it had a history. It had a big budget behind it, and to the studio's credit, some really great talent. And that's continued to this day. A lot of it is just belief. But, and also, there was a depth of bench attached to it. So while every movie and every classic, what we used to call comic book-based licensing program was a silo unto itself, they could see what the future looked like for Marvel overall. And so, listen, we swing for the fences every time, but we recognize that it's a business of singles and doubles. And you can't guarantee a home run. Listen, I rejoined Marvel instead of going to the venture fund that I was hired for because I loved Spider-Man as a kid and couldn't wait to have it on my business card. And at least my daughter's soccer team were very impressed. Well, it's great to see you, Russ. I really appreciate you coming on and lending some of your insights into the past and the future about this particular topic. Very important. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Superhero Leadership. I want to thank Joe Casada and Russ Brown for joining me. And I hope you will join me again next time. Until then, stay focused, stay driven, and keep leading like a superhero with purpose, passion, and integrity. I'm Peter Cuneo. Hey, by the way, if you haven't gotten your free copy of the 32 Essentials for Superhero Leadership, please go to our website at petercuneo.com.